Well, as you know, Easter is the most sacred holiday on the calendar for followers of Jesus. And so for Easter, I wanted to do something special, special for me anyway, because we're going to study some words this morning. And as you know, I am a huge word nerd. Um, I'm such a word, word nerd that I even know the background of the word nerd. Do you know where the first recorded usage of the word nerd was? Who was it, Nick? Dr. Seuss, that's right. This is from 1950s if I ran the zoo. There's a Nurkle and a nerd. Nurkle never caught on, but nerd did. Um, it pleases me because I'm a huge Dr. Seuss fan, and of all the glorious gibberish that he produced, that's the one that caught on, nerd. So I think that's fantastic. Just a little nerdy factoid for you about the origins of the word nerd. But I love words, and I especially love learning word origins. Does anybody know the word for somebody who studies word origins? Chris. Thanks, Andrew. A nerd, yes. Thank you for all these jokes. Appreciate, appreciate them. Nick? Oh, Nick. Round of applause for Nick. It is an etymologist, and you have to be careful not to say entomologist because that's someone who studies insects, and those, are, those guys are real nerds. You, you want to hang out with the cool nerds, the, the word nerds, the etymologists. But an etymologist doesn't just study where a word came from, its origins. They also study how a word changes and transforms over time. For example, take the word talent. When we say the word talent, we think of a gift or ability that we have. But do you know that understanding of the word talent actually comes from Matthew 25, where Jesus tells a parable of three servants who are given different talents. Do you know what a talent was, by the way, in those days? An amount of money. In fact, an enormous amount of money. One talent was worth 20 years days, or 20 years of a day laborer's wage. So 20 years wage in one lump sum. And the master gave these three servants different amounts of talents. One got five, one got two, one got one. The one who had five invested it and doubled it. So he had, when the master came back, he had ten to present to him. The one who had two doubled it and had four to present. But the one who got one squandered it. He buried it in a hole in the ground and did nothing with it. And when the master comes back, he condemns this last servant, calls him a wicked and lazy servant because he failed to use what was given to profit his master. It's a parable Jesus tells about us as servants of the king using all the blessings that he gives us for a single purpose, and that purpose is to bring glory to him. So if we take what he gave us, our blessings, our abilities, our talents, and we use them just for ourselves, we're squandering them. And from that parable... We get what we understand as talent. Now, we're, we're saying a, a sum of money, but we mean something that God has given us to use for his glory. I love that stuff. I find that stuff fascinating. That's the etymology of the word talent. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're not here to talk about parables and, and money and various forms of nerdiness. We're here to talk about Easter. There's a lot of words that surround Easter. There's place names like Golgotha, also known as Calvary. That's the hill that Jesus was crucified on. There's Gethsemane, the garden that he went to pray in. There's a whole schwack of theological salvation words that have to do with Easter. Words like <clears throat> substitutionary atonement. It's very fancy sounding. I don't I think I know what it means. I don't really know. Words like justification. Fancy words that mean something important. We're not going to talk about those. There's also celebratory words like Hosanna, and Hallelujah, and Resurrection. But the group of words that we're going to focus on today, uh, it's a bunch of Easter words that are clustered around one central titanic figure, and that's the figure of the cross of Jesus. So we're going to talk about crosswords. 
This Easter, we're going to take an etymological tour of words that either find their origins in the implement of Christ's death, the cross, so words that come directly from the cross, or else have had their meanings forever altered by the enormous historical influence of those two slabs of rough-cut timber that a humble teacher from Nazareth was stapled on two millennia ago. So we'll be looking at crosswords, words we use in our language today that are shaped by the cross. And in studying these words, my hope is that we'll see how we can be shaped by the cross as well. And so we begin fittingly so with the first word that comes out of the cross, and that's the word excruciating, which literally means to come out from the cross. Um, the, the Latin word for cross is crux. So in excruciating, here we see this C-R-U-C, that's the Latin word for, for cross, crux. And you know what the Latin prefix X means? We use it today too in our language. X means out of. So if you are an X smoker, that means you have moved out of that habit. If you have an X wife or an X boyfriend, that moves, means you have moved out of that relationship. And if your pain is so thoroughly agonizing that it feels as though you won't be able to bear it, then it's the same kind of pain that came out from the cross. We start with this particular crossword because Easter itself begins with this particular crossword. There's excruciating pain all over the last four weeks of the Easter story that we've been reading. In the Garden of Gethsemane, during what to me is the most powerful portrait of Jesus' humanity that we have, I think, Jesus' spiritual agony, as he, he wrestles with the task that his father has him, is going to have him do in the coming hours, he wrestles with that and he's spiritually agonizing to the point where Luke says he sweats drops of blood. That's how, how excruciating the spiritual agony of the job ahead of him is. The weight of the task is excruciating, but he knows he has to carry through with it. We also hear his spiritual excruciating pain when on the cross he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he had to be completely forsaken, completely abandoned, for for that death to to take the weight that it needed. So there's spiritual agony, spiritual excruciating pain all over the place. But he also had to go through all of this completely alone, which adds to his emotional agony. Imagine how painful it would be to look your betrayer, your friend who's followed you everywhere for three years, to look at him across the table and say, go ahead and do what you need to do. And then to get a kiss from him in the garden, knowing that he's selling you out for a little piece of silver. How... How excruciating would that emotional pain be? Imagine how painful it would be to have one of your three closest friends declared with a puffed-up chest, I would never deny you. And then the first instant that a little slave girl says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? You not only deny, you curse the one who you claimed never to deny. Imagine how painful it would be to hear your people, the Jewish people, who you've come to save, who you love very much, shout as one, as a bloodthirsty mob for your head. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Get rid of this guy. We want that other murderer instead, not this guy. How painful would that be? Imagine how painful it would be for the crowds to demand messianic signs and, and, and to mock your kingship with a, a fancy robe and a fake scepter and a crown of thorns on your head and post a sign on the cross above you. How painful it would be to be mocked like that for who you are. Imagine how painful it would be to be on the cross and look and see your mother and to see your best friend who you love more than anyone else, and that's John, staring up at you from the crowd, tears of confusion and frustration and misunderstanding just flooding out the last bit of hope that they had. 
How painful it would be to see that. How painful would all these emotional wounds be? They'd be excruciating, almost unbearable. And then on top of all that spiritual pain and all that emotional pain, there's the physical pain. Romans were very, very skilled at torture and crucifixion was their favorite. The details are gruesome and familiar. It starts with beatings, whippings, even a scourging. And a scourging is a whip with nine ends on it. And at the end of each tail was a piece of bone or metal that they whip you and then they pull it out. That all comes first, leaving you within an inch of your life before the fun even really begins. You're then forced to march through the streets with the heavy beams of the wood grinding against the raw hamburger of your flesh. How agonizing that would be. You're then given a nail through each wrist and a nail through your feet and you're lifted several feet up into the air. Every time the weight on your wrist gets unbearable, you shift your weight to the feet, but that just creates a different kind of agony. It also constricts your diaphragm so that the only way you can catch your breath is by lifting up, which puts all the weight back on your wrists and on your feet. It's just extremely agonizing. Sometimes the Romans, if they were feeling especially cruel, would put a spike right here at your back so you couldn't even lean up against the wood to get some relief. Jesus was also given the extra cruelty of a crown of thorns dug into his scalp. Death was slow in a crucifixion, sometimes over the course of several days, until you were either A, picked apart by animals, or B, bled out, or C, succumbed to thirst, exposure, or shock, or all three. If they wanted to get the whole thing over with, they simply broke both your legs, and then you would suffocate a lot quicker. No wonder, knowing all of that that Jesus went through, no wonder the strongest word we have for expressing unbearable emotional, spiritual, and physical pain literally means to come out from the cross. Excruciating. So much of the Easter story deals with excruciating pain that it can be overwhelming and uncomfortable to read. Read it anyway. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. That suffering has a purpose. That, that suffering is part substitutionary, meaning Jesus bore the full brunt of God's wrath in order to, to deliver us from a similar but much more permanent fate ourselves. So he took our spot. He took that punishment, brutal as it was, so that we would escape a much more eternally brutal punishment. But more than that, the cross is a picture of just how determined Christ was to A, obey his Father, so just a powerful model for obedience no matter what the situation, and B, to demonstrate his love for you and for me, and for all of us. If he's willing to do that, he must really love you. And he proved it. Sin and death and separation from God, those aren't God's God's fault. They're humanity's fault. We are complicit with those things. Sin, death, separation. You and I, we're participants in this fallen system of pride and selfishness and disobedience. And Jesus steps into this system, which we're a part of, and dismantles it forever. Completely tears it down. We never, humans never choose to suffer. In fact, especially in North America, we do everything we can to avoid suffering. We never choose suffering, but suffering is our collective fault as human beings. That's what the story of the fall tells us. Jesus, however, is the opposite. He did choose to suffer, or at least chose to obey his father, which led to his suffering. He did choose to suffer, but the suffering was never his fault. We don't choose suffering, but it is our fault. 
He did choose suffering, and it was never his fault. And because he loves us so deeply, he willingly took all of that suffering, all of that fault, all of that excruciating pain, and he conquered it on the cross. He saved us on that cross. If excruciating means to come out from the cross, then it wasn't just blood and agony that came out from the cross. There was also hope and freedom and peace and adoption into the family of our Heavenly Father. All the worst things are characterized as excruciating, pain that identifies with the suffering of Jesus, but all the best things came out from that cross as well. Things like hope and peace, adoption into the family. Which leads me to the second cross word, crucible. You see or hear that C-R-U-C at the beginning of crucible as well. That's the Latin word for crux. The word in Latin originally meant night lamp. A crucible was a little light that they had in medieval cathedrals that lit up the cross so that you could come and worship at night. That's what a crucible originally was. I didn't know that until I studied the etymology yesterday, which is a fun little journey for me and probably no one else. Um, But that origin is just one part of the etymology of the word crucible. The other aspect of etymology is the shift in meaning. And so when we think of a crucible today, we don't think of a little candle lighting up a cross in some dank, cathedral somewhere. When we think of crucible, what do we think of? We think of, what's that? Refining, yeah. We think of a vessel for testing metals or for melting them to establish purity. That's what a crucible is now. We think of putting a bunch of silver in, you put the silver in, it burns away the dross, the stuff you don't want, and it leaves the pure silver to establish purity. Or scientists, chemists will use a crucible, which is just a little porcelain container, to mix things in because the porcelain's not flammable, so you can do whatever they want in it, and it won't affect the container. That's that's for testing metals and for melting them to establish purity. And there's no better image for describing the purpose of Jesus' excruciating pain than that. Jesus endured all of that excruciating agony on Friday, and it led to the glory of Sunday. Had he failed to drink every last drop from that cup of suffering that his father made him drink, or had he chosen to summon angels to gently and carefully take him down from the cross and deliver him from that pain, or had he demanded vengeance instead of forgiveness for his assailants, then he would have failed the test. He would have been a medal in the crucible that fails. The crucible of his trial, his abandonment, his torture, his death would have been for nothing. He would have just been another failed Jewish revolutionary, crucified and forgotten like thousands before and after him. But that's not what happened. The story doesn't end on Friday. If the most timelessly beautiful silver has to go through the fires of the crucible first to be purified, then that's true at Easter time as well. Since Jesus went through the trials of Friday, he could arise pure and glorified on Sunday. And if Jesus could be tested in the crucible of dirty humanity and come out pure and glorious, then he's able to do the same for you and I. There is more dross than silver in me most of the time. There is a whole lot of dross that needs to get burned away. I am very far from pure. And this crucible we're in can feel overwhelmingly hot, so hot that we wonder if we'll ever pass the test, the test of being human and following God. But it is you are able to come through this crucible on the other side, purified. I believe that it is, and I believe that he stands with me in the crucible, guiding, delivering, and protecting. I believe the suffering of this life will itself be burned away. 
in the crucible, crucible of life. And I believe that the Holy Spirit functions something like those lamps burning at midnight in those medieval cathedrals. I believe the Holy Spirit is shedding some light on the cross for us, which is what the original definition of crucible is, shedding light on the cross. I think that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. And the more clearly we see the cross, the more clearly we see the pure, beautiful goodness that Jesus promises to share with us in the midst of the fires of this chaotic life. The more clearly, the more perfectly we see the cross and the empty tomb, the more perfectly and clearly we're able to see how he delivers us through the crucible of life. And that brings us to crosswords number three and four. And I've grouped them together because they're so similar. One is the word crucial. The other is the word crux. Crux is the literal Latin word for cross, as we've already seen, and crucial literally means cross-ish. For something to be crucial means it is cross-ish. Crucial means a decision or event that is extremely critical and that success or failure depend upon it. Therefore, the Oilers have a crucial decision to make with their next general manager. (laughs) Success or failure, probably failure, to be honest, depend upon it. Crux means something similar. So crucial is an adjective, describes a noun, but crux is the noun itself. Crux means something similar. It is the decisive or most important point requiring a resolution or an outcome. So the crux of the Oilers' failures over the last five years has been poor decision-making by the general manager and other fellow brain trust. But the crux of the failure now leads to the crucial decision. Once you figure out the crux of the problem, then you can make the crucial decision. Crux and crucial go hand in hand. One is a noun, one is an adjective, and they go back to the cross of Christ. The cross is the most crucial event in all creation, second only to the crucial event that happened two days later, the resurrection. All human success or failure depends on that crucial, that pair of crucial events, the cross and the empty tomb. The cross and the empty tomb are the crux of God's salvation plan. He founded his entire salvation plan for the entire human race, for the entirety of time, on three relatively small iron nails and two relatively small rough-cut pieces of timber and one relatively small roll-away stone. All of his plan for salvation hinges on those three things. Isn't that something? The whole crux of the plan is those things. Here's the crux of the Easter message. Jesus' willingness to obey his Father and endure the crucible of human existence and then die an excruciating death sets up the most crucial event in history. And that's the resurrection. That's today. The conquering of sin and death once for all time, even if sin and death are still realities in our life as we live it in the crucible today. We, We can't escape sin and death, but we can conquer it. The cross is the crucial moment of truth and the empty tomb is the crux of the plan. It's everything. Foolish though it may seem to those who have not had the cross illuminated for them, the resurrection is everything. And it sets up the most critical follow-up question upon which all success or failure depends. Remember, crucial and crux means you got to do something now with what you know or what you need to do. The cross and the empty tomb are the crux of our human existence. They require a resolution and an outcome. The cross and the empty tomb require a resolution and an outcome. A choice, actually. The choice is this. Either believe and follow, making the crucified Christ your king, or reject and deny, making myself king in his place. 
That's the choice. And you only have two choices. The resolution and outcome are based on this. Pass the crucible test by following him or fail spectacularly and be burned away. Walk a new path that leads to life or stay on the same misguided journey towards my own proud destruction. Crucial doesn't even begin to describe the importance of our response to Easter. I believe. In fact, Easter should lead us to one more crossword, just one more, the last one, and it'll be quick. And that word is cruciferous. It's not a word probably any of us have heard. I'd never heard it before. What is cruciferous? Cruciferous is a family of vegetables, including broccoli, cauliflower, bok choy, cabbage, garden cress, and Brussels sprouts, whose flowers have four petals which take the shape of a cross. This does not fit into our sermon in any way. It is pure trivia, but now you have an excuse to eat disgusting vegetables at Easter dinner. Broccoli is the only one I give the check of approval to. But actually, cruciferous does come from a Latin word, crucifer. Crucifer. I know it sounds like Lucifer, but I promise it's not an evil word. It's a beautiful word. Crucifer means cross-bearer. Cruci, again, crux, cross, and fur. My name is Christopher, which is a Latin... (laughs) Why is that funny? Sharon literally just spit her coffee back into her coffee mug. No, Sharon, my name is Christopher. Christopher. Christ means Christ, and fair means carrier. So I am the carrier, the bearer of Christ. That's what fair means. So crucifer means carrier of, of the cross, bearer of the cross. Crucifer is not at all a common English word unless you happen to be involved in the high churches, like Catholic churches, Anglican churches, Lutheran churches. They have a crucifer as part of their service. I've never actually been to a Catholic service, but somebody will carry in a crucifix on a, on a giant stick as part of the procession. Um, I, is that all the time, Tara, or is that not all the time, occasionally? And the one who carries that... Cr- My studies tell me in the Lutheran church. Perhaps not all the time. Okay. It did say that it's most common in the Anglican churches, but that other high churches do it too. There you go. The Orthodox churches, yeah. They're high church, yeah. Okay. The priest says the incense. So the guy walking behind, carrying the giant cross, is a crucifer. That, that is his title, crucifer. So I'm not lying. Thank you, Andrew, for bailing me out there. This is a real thing that exists on planet Earth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah. And the cross has like ribbons draped over it, kind of like this. Um, that person carrying that cross is called a crucifer. That's their title. So in that context, a crucifer is simply a person appointed to carry the church's processional cross during processions at the beginning and end of the service. That's what Wikipedia tells me. But I'm not going to close this wordy, nerdy Easter sermon with the image of a child in robes carrying a fancy stick. Instead, I want us to think of the power and beauty that comes with identifying ourselves as crucifers. Each one of us is a carrier of the cross, and all of us together are the carriers of a shared cross, and all churches and all places are working together to carry that cross into a dark, broken world. If we answer the crucial question of what the cross and empty tomb of Jesus means for us with a resounding everything, as I hope you do, if your answer for the crucial question of what does the cross What does the empty tomb mean? If the answer is everything, 
then we need to be prepared to deny ourselves and take up our crosses every day, as it says in Luke 9. We'd better be prepared to carry the cross, that iconic crux of sacrificial love and selfless life, through all the circumstances of this crucible that we find ourselves in. We are bearers of the cross of Jesus. That means we live sacrificial lives. That means we give selfless love. That means all that the cross represented for Jesus is now represented in us. All that power, all that sacrifice, all that humility and brokenness, that's true of us too. But that also means the empty tomb is true for us as well. All that glory, all that power, all that beauty, that's all true for us too. If we carry our cross, then it's true for us. And so the last crossword, crucifer, speaks to our identity as cross people. It's not easy to carry a cross. Make no mistake about it. It's not easy to carry a cross. It doesn't always lead to happy places. In fact, for Jesus, it led to the hill of skulls. There may be fiery trials. There may be loneliness and pain and sacrifice, those excruciating agonies that he felt in his last few hours. Those will be true for us, too. But if we are crucifers, then there are all, there's also blessings. Right here, right now, there are blessings for us. One would be ongoing purification, being made more and more like Jesus. That's what being a cross bearer makes us, more and more like Jesus. Another is like the, the original definition of a crucible, a little candle that lit up the cross. If we carry our cross, then the cross gets illuminated for us. Our purpose gets illuminated for us. Another blessing right here and now is a community of fellow cross bearers to lighten the load. Jesus didn't carry the cross all by himself even. Simon of Cyrene came and gave him a hand. Well, he was forced to, but what an honor and what a privilege. And we don't need to carry the load all by ourselves either. That's why we get together every week to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, because we are fellow cross bearers. We're in this together. And best of all, most crucially of all, the blessings that come with the greatest words that a word nerd like me can muster. Words that are only experienced in the presence of our cross-bearing, stone-rolling, death-conquering king. And that's words like peace. Words like hope. Words like joy. Salvation. Forgiveness. Acceptance. Healing. Glory. Life eternal. Does any of that appeal to you in any way? Because if you're a crucifer, if you're a cross-bearer, they're available to you right now. And above all, in all, through all, the crux of the whole Easter story is love. If excruciating means to come out from the cross, then love is the most beautiful thing that comes out from the cross. In a purely technical sense, it's the most excruciating thing. Nothing came from the cross or the empty tomb more than love. If love is the most beautiful thing that comes out from the cross, then the question is, what do you come out with from the cross? When you stand at the foot of the cross, when you behold the empty tomb like Mary, like Peter, what comes out of that for you? Where does that take you? That's the crucial decision that I think we need to make, not just once and then let it be. That's the crucial decision we need to make every day. What does the cross mean for me? I just want to close with a Bible verse, and then we're actually going to sing a song of response. This is Colossians 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, 
to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That's the blessing of being a crucifer. You see the crucible there, that you'll be presented blemish and free from accusation if you are a crucifer, if you carry his cross with him. And we see that he makes peace. There's that word peace, and it's a beautiful thing. So we're going to sing This is Amazing Grace um, together. Angie escaped. I'm sure she's just letting them know we're singing a song. But until uh, she gets back, would you uh, pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you also for the empty tomb. And I pray that we would be people shaped by the cross, that we would be crucifers, people who bear your cross to, to the world around us, that we would be people who bring your light and your love, your hope and your peace, all those, all those blessings that come with being a cross bearer. I pray that we would bring to the world around us. And Jesus, we know that you are the ultimate crucifer, that when you bore the cross, you brought those things to us. We celebrate that. We celebrate the victory of the empty tomb. And I pray that we would be shaped by both those things, that we would make crucial decisions every day to bring you glory because you're worthy of it, because you bring glory to us. We pray all these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Those are those guys are real nerds. Yeah. You want to hang out with the cool nerds, the, the word nerds, the etymologists. I'll just cut that right out of the podcast altogether. We'll pretend it never happened. Don't worry about that.